This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. By the looks of things, there actually might be a new reality show featuring William Shatner that will give some people that opportunity. Well, we'll see how it works out. Well, we don't have to actually travel to space to explore it and learn about it, thanks to some incredible technology like the Mars rover, like the James Webb Space Telescope, and thanks to the incredible expertise of a gentleman who was kind enough to join us on a semi-monthly, a.k.a. bi-weekly basis, Dr. Sky Steve Cates, who is a wonderful guy. He happens to be a veteran broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. And you can also listen to his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, at uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Now, for WLVL in Buffalo, for KWAM in Memphis, for stations that have joined us within the last two weeks, boy, are you in for a treat? Because for the next hour... Whatever you have questions about, Steve Cates is going to do his best to answer them as it relates to space, astronomy, aviation. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. 800-848-9222. And I have a lot of questions because there has been a ton of news relating to outer space this week. Steve, I can't believe it's only been two weeks. It feels like eons have passed by. Absolutely. Good morning, Frank. As we go on, infinite side of midnight here as we talk about these amazing wonders that you've been describing. And always a privilege and honor to be here with you and the the listeners as we continue to move out into the cosmos. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Um, Elon Musk seems to get a ton of attention on almost a daily basis. He did a series of interviews with Tucker Carlson this week in which he was focusing on Twitter. He gets a lot of a lot of attention because of the attention that's paid to electric cars these days and what he's done with Tesla. But this was a particularly big week for those of us that follow what Elon Musk is up to when it comes to SpaceX. There was supposed to be the launch of the SpaceX Starship. Looks like it was delayed a bit. Give folks an idea of uh, what the SpaceX Starship is and why that's such a big deal. And then where are we with when this is going to launch? Well, Frank, as you said very well here, it's the most amazing project that Elon Musk is working on. Starship, this stainless steel, beautiful rocket that looks like it came out of the 1950s sci-fi movies, is sitting on top of this massive booster, the B-4 booster. And it's at a place which, of course, is uh, just about to hopefully launch as we move fast forward. The next launch date, the last one was canceled just as the countdown almost got to zero, just by a few minutes, I should say. 
because of some issues with the pressure valve. But the next launch window, according to them and the media, we're talking about Thursday, on April 20th. The window, the launch window, is between 9.28 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But to put this in perspective, boy, wouldn't it be great to be there to watch this, even though you'd have to be miles away, because the explosive force of this particular rocket, even Elon Musk has said, you know, don't expect miracles in so many words, not to quote him exactly. Why do they say that? Because this will be the most powerful rocket ever launched, generating, get a load of this, some 17 million pounds of thrust. And to put that, Frank, in perspective to what the Saturn V moon rocket, a mighty rocket itself, with those five F-1 engines, it generated about 7.5 million pounds of thrust. So what's going to happen? It stands nearly 400 feet tall. The rocket itself looks like something from a sci-fi movie of days gone by, but it's now the 2023 time period. Amazing technology. And what they're hoping to do, the Starship itself has had some problems, as, as Elon Musk knows very well. Just that stainless steel rocket, which, by the way, will maybe take someday upwards of 100 passengers to the moon and to Mars and back and actually can be refueled in space by a more, kind of a mirror copy of the Starship itself. But what's yeah. going to happen once they launch the actual starship will not make it completely around the Earth on, you know, intentionally and will land in the water somewhere north of Hawaii. That's their estimate, and that's their hope. But in the future, starship will land successfully, hopefully, soft land, and so will the giant booster rocket standing next to that monster launch tower, which has these big arms called Mechazilla. So imagine seeing that big booster in the future come back down and then be grappled by that big arm this is just amazing technology, and it seems like it's happening so fast, don't you think, Frank? This is incredible. Absolutely. No, that's for sure. Um, the European Space Agency successfully launched its JUICE vessel last Friday. Apparently yes. the mission is to see if the moons of Jupiter are possibly uh, inhabitable and habitable. Uh, so what is the story with, with JUICE? What exactly... Um, when exactly are we going to see some results in terms of what they're looking for? Well, the European Space Agency mission, Frank, it's actually the acronym for JUICE. It's a Jupiter Ice, or Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, I should say. And basically what this rocket has done, it's launched successfully, as we know, last week aboard the Ariane 5. And by the way, that was the same rocket that launched the James Webb Telescope back on Christmas about a year and a half ago. And that, of course, this particular spacecraft, they launched them from French Guiana for a reason. The closer you get to the equator, the more likely you have the fastest orbital speeds that the Earth turns over 1,000-plus miles an hour. So this very heavy payload, like the Webb and this particular, juice, you know, particular spacecraft, it will not get to Jupiter until July of 2031. Why is that? Wow. Yeah, because it needs to take – well, if you went in the straight line, it would still be a very long mission, many, many years – but what this particular spacecraft needs, I should say, is that it needs to have the gravity assist of not only the Earth, the Moon, and also Jupiter. So it's going to take the long way as it goes out. But the purpose of this is to get it there in July of 2031. But here's something interesting. Galileo discovered these four moons. He actually discovered three of them on January 7th of 1610. And the next night, he discovered the last of the four. Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. This particular JUICE mission is intentionally not going to Io. That's a very volcanic moon. It's too close to Jupiter with all the radiation. The real interest in this one is kind of ironic. You would think that they want to go to Europa, 
because even in sci-fi movies like 2010, not to be a movie spoiler, they talked about stay away from Europa. But even American spacecraft that will go in the future, like this particular Europa Express, they're saying that there could be some sort of underground type of oceans where life may exist. So in this particular case, once it gets there, it'll kind of scan carefully Europa because the radiation there is still very, very strong. But its main purpose, get a load of this, is to actually go to the Jupiter satellite, the largest moon that Jupiter has, the largest moon in the solar system. It's actually larger than Mercury. It's called Ganymede. And Ganymede is so strange, Frank. It has its own magnetic field. It's the only satellite in the solar system that has its own magnetic field. But to do this, the JUICE spacecraft is powered by 10 big solar arrays, massive, with over 8,000 pounds of propellant. So we have a little bit of time to kind of talk about this in future iterations of this particular broadcast. And hopefully we'll do that because July of 2031 can't come fast enough for those that want to learn. Yeah, no. Um, And what would that mean if the moons of Jupiter are habitable? I mean, is that a potential source of a, a human colony? Can you colonize a moon? Well, you probably could, but let's be realistic here when we talk about these things. We're still trying to get our way to the moon to, you know, set up our first lunar base. Hopefully, maybe it will land there, hopefully, by 2025. That's optimistic. But if they were to find some sort of a, you know, quantified ocean or some kind of big puddles of water or some kind of, you know, iteration of that, it would be great because that might give us the answer even quicker than Mars, where is life in this solar system? And not to switch gears on everybody, but we found out that the Ryugu spacecraft, the Japanese spacecraft, which brought back samples, they've actually discovered some organic compounds in there and B3 and something that also is a constituent that helps make RNA possible. So it's more than likely with this particular Jupiter mission, it's just that it takes so long to get there. That would be a really tough challenge. It's way more difficult than, you know, sending people to the planet Mars. Yeah, no, I I would imagine so. 800-848-9222. We're going to get to your calls in just just a moment. Speaking of moons, does the the Earth have a quasi-moon? What is a quasi-moon? Well, a quasi-moon, Frank, would be something other than our own regular satellite, which we simply call the moon, as we know, a beautiful object, and one that we depend on for, you know, our, our tides on the Earth. But there's two objects that have been detected in Earth orbit, and they're very interesting. One is a little asteroid that was just discovered called 2023 FW13. And my gosh, the way these astronomers come up with these numbers and names, it's almost like you look at license plates out there on the highway. No two are obviously alike, Mm. and there's so many asteroids. But in this particular case, this one has a resonance, they call it, of one in one. So in other words, it kind of orbits the Earth in a regular stable type of an orbit. But there was an object found in 2016, the satellite or its little tiny moon, about 50 feet in diameter, called 2016 HO3. That's another one of these objects that's out there. And it was discovered in one of the big Hawaiian telescopes. So they actually called it. It's actually to be like a little traveler. It's Kamo O'Aliwa, which is an interesting name. Sorry, I can't translate that from from the Hawaiian (laughs) derivation. And I'll give you a shot at it, Frank. No, (laughs) I'll pass. Thank you. But it's interesting. So the simple answer to this very, very interesting question about does the Earth have quasi-moons, for the first time, one of these objects, the 1216 HO3, and we'll skip the Hawaiian translation, is that that object seems to have been in orbit since about the year 100 B.C. 
So it's not a threat to the Earth. It's actually more interesting because it's not one of these errant objects that's floating around and coming across the Earth's path. It's actually decided to make peace with the Earth as an asteroid if it had intelligence. So it's actually doing the little thing where the Earth's in control, and it kind of does an orbit. But to look at it, even the largest of telescopes would only show it as a mere speck. Imagine a 50-foot in diameter object. It's way out there in the darkness mm. of space. 800-848-9222. Phil is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Phil. Yes. Uh, hi. I've got a question for your guest. Good morning, uh, Phil. Question at, oh, good morning, sir. Uh, I hope this doesn't stretch you to the limit, but here's my concern. Yes. The surface of the Earth, the crust of the Earth contains elements ranging from hydrogen all the way up to uranium as natural elements. Uh, my point is this. I understand that, that these elements are manufactured within stars. Stars are giant fusion reactors. Correct. And they, they go through cycles, different solar cycles over billions of years, and they produce heavier and heavier elements. Is it likely to presume and logical to presume that the solar system, or at least the Earth, originated with a dead or dying star? It's very possible. Now, the way we look at this whole thing, we call it a solar nebula. And the short answer, which is probably the most accurate of all, is that when the whole star system, meaning our sun formed, it sped out material that went into big loops and orbits around the star. So yes, the material originally originated from that solar cloud, and eventually they coalesced into planetary objects, which obviously gives us all the nutrients and elements that are deep within the Earth's core. But I had the hardest time in college trying to understand this, Phil, and I still can't figure it out. The professor then, who's telling us that stars form by this material like dust gas that spins around, and under eventual time, gravity forms this pressure, or gravity is the pressure, and then it eventually forms fusion. Now think about that for a minute. And I said, well, how do I even accept that? And the response from everybody in the same classroom was they were just as dumbfounded as I was. But it takes an incredible amount of time. We're talking billions of years for that thing to take place. So really, truly where all these elements and things and minerals came from, probably not from a dying star, but from an evolving star. Great question. Phil. Absolutely. Thank you, Phil. 800-848-9222. Steve, what's in the sky these days or upcoming that people should take note of and be on the lookout for? Well, on the other side of the world, tomorrow, we're going to have on the 20th, which actually happens for us on the 19th late in the day. You can't see it, but I'm mentioning it because it's one of the weirdest eclipses in the world, and we're going to get into eclipse season. We have what's called a rare hybrid total solar eclipse. What's mm. that? Starting off near Perth, Australia, and arcing itself above Indonesia in an area called Timor, they'll get to see an eclipse that's annular, which means it starts off where you don't want to stare at the sun because the moon is smaller and you've got the ring of fire, like the Johnny Cash ring of fire thing. But then as the Earth and the moon continue to move for a minute and 16 seconds, it turns into a total eclipse. So it gives you one minute and 16 seconds of totality. Now, the reason I mention that, it's not in our skies, but we'll talk more about eclipses later on. But the real thing is that people can start to see right now this week. Take a good look in the West, no matter where you're listening to this program. And in the evening sky, just after sunset, the beauty of two planets are still visible easy if you have a clear view of the West. That's Mercury the innermost planet. And remember, it's actually smaller than Jupiter's Ganymede. And we find out just above it is the showstopper. It's Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, easy to see with the naked eye. But frankly, we have a meteor shower that's actually starting to an uptick right now. It's called the Lyrids. 
And it comes from this magical constellation called Lyra the Harp. How do you see it? You look into the northeast sky after midnight, and if your skies are clear right now, it's a good way to start. You'll see a bright blue star there called Vega. It's 25 light years away from us. That's the region or radiant where these meteors are coming from. The peak activity should occur. It depends on who you ask. Some say Friday night into Saturday. Some say Thursday morning into Friday morning. But if you get to see some of these, now, don't expect a lot. We always talk truth here because so many in the media, not, not to attack them viciously, but they talk about these things, and then people think that they can see thousands of meteors because the thing's coming or the asteroid thing. There's always an asteroid coming. But anyway, these meteors that you may get to see, and they're shooting stars to many. They're beautiful. Debris from comets. These are some of the oldest of meteor shower debris. This is the Lyrid shower, which has probably been around way before even recorded uh, Chinese annals. It goes back maybe to 200 or 300 B.C., and maybe even longer than that. So it's all from a comet called Comet Thatcher. So meteor showers, they're all tied in. Mm. They're debris from comets. That's some of the stuff, and there's so much more to talk about if time would permit. If people are interested in looking up at the night sky for noteworthy constellations or comets or eclipses or probes, other planets, whatever the case may be, want to encourage them to go to the website, theskylive.com. Absolutely. You can, you can check there every day. You don't have to wait for just the every every two weeks that uh, that you and I end up uh, end up chatting. It's a great yes. resource, and you get a full list of, uh, of things to look at and what direction to look at them in. May I mention one more Please. that we have? No, this is interesting. If, you have, if you're a person who wants to look at the different bright stars in the sky, the brightest of all the stars in the nighttime sky is Sirius. And just look into the southwest after sunset. It's that beautiful beacon of blue light, 8.6 light years away. Figure out what were you doing 8.6 years ago, that how long the light took to get there. But in the northeast, and particularly the eastern sky, right around, say, 8 p.m. local time, there's an orangey-looking star, very bright. It's the third brightest star in the sky, and actually one of the brightest in the northern hemisphere called Arcturus. And it's 37 light years away. But here's the interesting thing about Arcturus when you look at it. It looks like a little dot, but a bright one. Frank, that star, if you look at the sun, our sun's 865,000 miles across. Let's, let's just round it off, and I'm not an accountant. I'd be fired if I did that to my <laughs> clients and call it a million as far as miles. But 864,000 miles. This star, Arcturus, get a look at this, is 20 million miles in diameter. So it's an old red-orange supergiant. And the really interesting story about it is in 1933, when the Chicago World's Fair happened, a magical time, great technology, the Art Deco of the world, we found out that there was a telescope placed on Lake Michigan. And why did they do that? They had the light of the star Arcturus shine through the telescope to a switch at the bottom where your eye would be, and it turned the lights on of this magical fair. And the reason they did it, because the star's 37-ish light years away, and guess what? The previous World's Fair was there around a period of 37 to 40 years. What an amazing way to celebrate. And imagine that starting off a big event. Imagine a big football stadium doing that to celebrate something by the light of a star. 
the lights came That's on. wild. Uh, that's great. Hey, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. If you want to queue up, there are still two open lines, and uh, we'll try and get as many of your questions in this hour as we can. 800-848-9222. This is normally the other side of midnight, but on a biweekly basis, we become the infinite side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of their breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight This is Under the Milky Way by Church. This is actually a birthday bumper music selection from my friend and colleague at WABC in New York, Sid Rosenberg. It's Sid Rosenberg's birthday today, and he said his most fervent birthday wish would be that we play this song. How apropos that we're discussing all things in the Milky Way galaxy with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you're interested in learning more about his take on the cosmos, you can absolutely check out the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. Just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search Dr. Sky or the Dr. Sky Experience. It comes right up. And if you subscribe on any podcast app, you'll get the episodes downloaded to your phone uh, as soon as they're uploaded. Steve, speaking of the cosmos, everyone's always so interested in Stephen Hawking and his work. Uh, obviously, his seminal work, A Brief History of Time, is still widely regarded as one of the greatest books on the galaxy ever. And it's written in a way that laymen like me can understand. What are we learning? What are we hearing about his final thoughts on the cosmos? Well, it's interesting, Frank, is he, you know, to say, you know, his whole life was shortened by ALS, but he never should have lived that long, according to his doctors. So it's amazing that his journey through life was that fulfilling. But in his latter days, what he was really talking about is he wasn't necessarily a big fan of multiverses. And there's many reasons for that that would probably take a long time to explain. But in the simplest way, he was trying to say that gravity still is one of the weak of the fundamental forces. Now, many people may scratch their head and go, wait a minute, you know, if you pick a 100-pound weight up, it's going to fall and maybe hit you on the foot. Yes, that happens. But simply gravity, and it's hard if you hit your foot with something like that, because what I'm about to say, you'd probably go, that's not true. What I'm about to say is gravity is the warpage of space-time. So what he thought is, and this is something interesting, he wasn't a big fan of multiverses. Wait, just repeat the sentence, gravity is the what of space-time? He calls it one of the weak forces, of weak one force. of the weak of the weak of the fundamental forces. Got it. You know, have the strong force, the weak force, gravity, electromagnetic, all the whole thing there. But the interesting thing I think that's so impressive here, he was even going on to these theories. He was saying that if indeed we were to find out that if gravity were a bit stronger, 
stars would die earlier, and thus the possibility of life, which we know only is here right now, but that planetary objects that could sustain life, in other words, if gravity was actually a stronger force, stars would by necessity grow faster and age faster. So maybe we're lucky that that's not the case. And that if there was a 1 in 10,000 increase in this whole thing of gravitation on the other side, you would find out that maybe black holes would replace star formation and that this whole shebang as we know it today wouldn't exist with so many trillions of stars. But again, he left us too early with many questions unanswered. And one of the last things he was still working on, and it was very controversial at the time because most people thought that black holes were these finite objects in space that nothing escaped. And we kept hearing that from days in school. Even young children are told, well, black holes, nothing comes out. You know, they go in. And who knows where they go, wormhole, whatever. But the interesting thing about this is, as we continue to look in the universe, he was saying that black holes have leakage because they have what he called hair. Now, not like you and I have on our head, but that something around the event horizon actually has little spikes that can come out, and thus that black holes are not as permanent. So they can go poof, pop out, pop in. And lucky for us, I haven't detected one, and hopefully I'll not be making that you know, breaking news announcement here, but it may be too late if we found out that a black hole just popped into our solar system. Mm. So maybe we should be grateful for what we have <laughs> as we enjoy this program without panicking everybody. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Baltimore. Excuse me. Uh, Mark is in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Yes, thank you very much. And Dr. Sky, it's great talking to you. You're a gift to all the listeners Absolutely. that are fascinated with, with astronomy oh, and space. You're so kind, but good morning. Good morning to you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, my my question is this. You know, I've often heard about something called Planet X. What sure. is that? I'm not really sure. What is Planet X? Well, it all started a long time ago with the guy who was actually my professor. I, I don't mean to lean on that too much, but Claude Tombaugh, who discovered Pluto up here in Flagstaff. I'm, I'm in Phoenix right now back in 1930. The person who founded the observatory, thus Lowell Observatory, was Percival Lowell. And his pursuit was to look for an object that was lurking out beyond the orbit of Neptune. And to make this very short and sweet, but it's interesting, it's a long story, we'll, we'll kind of condense it. When Uranus was discovered by Herschel in 1781, they noticed that something was tugging on Uranus, so something must be out there called Neptune. They found it. They also found this object, which is now a dwarf Pluto. But what they were really searching for beyond that is something that still people have many, many descriptions of. It could be a gigantic planet the size or bigger than Jupiter, lurking still out in the solar system, way out there, you know, way, way out beyond what they call the Kuiper Belt, where comets come. So this Planet X concept is something that's still on people's minds. Mike Brown of Caltech has a big theory. He says there's something lurking out there that we haven't found yet that's still tugging on the entire solar system. So, Mark, those are some uh, brief descriptions of what Planet X might have been, what was, and now what might be lurking out there. Thank you, Mark. Hey, um, we have uh, – you mentioned black holes uh, a moment ago. Mm -hmm. There was uh, some other black hole-related news, and uh, you mentioned the that you don't care to get too close to a black hole to find out how true this news might be. But NASA is – they had warned of a runaway black mm -hmm. hole, which they oh, yeah. described as an invisible monster on the loose. But then you had also astronomers confirm the first and second closest black holes to Earth. Now, yes. how close is the closest black hole, do we think? 
Well, according to the observations, there's the Gaia spacecraft and the Gaia scientists that discovered what they call BH-1, Black Hole 1. How, how authentic and original is that? The distance allegedly is, get a load of this, 1,500 light years away. Mm. That's pretty uh, pretty close in my neighborhood, oh, yeah. because when you're talking about these big blasts of gamma ray bursters that are 2 billion light years away, and then BH-2, 3,800 light years away. So the point is, up till now, we have not had any concrete evidence of black holes that close. The closest one that we have been observing, you know, is the supermassive black hole that lies where, Frank, in the center of our Milky Way, which is right in the core. And if we were talking about creating gastronomical delights, you know, in cuisine, this particular supermassive black hole eats stars for breakfast. So that is super powerful, but it's 27,000 light years away. So those two that I just mentioned, they're kind of the record book so far. But who knows if Stephen Hawking is, is correct, maybe these things pop in and out of the universe at will. Uh, let's hope that not any time soon or any future broadcast that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Trish is in Westchester. Hello, Trish. Hey, how are you? Good. Good. Good morning. So my question is a little weird. I've we'll always thought I was a little kid, not understand where space ends. Mm-hmm. Where does space like end? Is that what... You draw a picture, mm-hmm. and the picture ends, correct? Yes. What's beyond that? Very interesting question, Trish. You know, nobody knows. I'd, I'd be telling the audience and doing them a disservice if I really knew. But here's what we think we know from astronomy and what they call cosmology, how this whole universe was created, at least scientifically that on the farthest edges of the universe, we're talking about a distance of about 94 to 95 billion light years. But then to go on, Trish, what you're asking is, what the heck's on the other side? And nobody nobody knows what that is, no matter who they are. I mean, we've had on programs I've done, and Frank, you know this, you know, on programs that you've done, we've had these people talk about the, the concept of black holes right. and dark energy. Nobody really knows. So, Trish, we can say that if we were giving it like a map, if you took the old AAA roadmap, we would say that at the extent of that map, if that were the universe, where the paper ends, and that's a good old school analogy, that's the edge of the universe, 94 to 95 billion light years. And remember, that's the whole shebang if you looked at a circle. So you divide that in half. Well, what's half of 95? Maybe what, 45, 40, 46 light year, billion, billion light years? It's complicated, Trish, but uh, I guarantee if you keep listening to this program, I think as soon as we find out more, Frank, right, we'll share. Oh, you, de- you better believe it. In uh, the, uh, the Astrophysical Journal, they published a study where researchers are reporting a, a first-of-its-kind ultra-luminous X-ray source, which apparently these objects that they're describing in this study are about 100 times brighter than they should be. What are ultraluminous X-ray sources? Well, nobody knows this either. I know it sounds like we're giving answers. To, we're not giving answers to great questions. But what we hear, what we're hearing, the scientists are telling us. How about this? This most powerful signal coming out from space, which is 10 million times brighter than the sun. The object is identified as M eighty two X two, whatever that means. That's what the identified object is. So in space, this is what astronomers speculate. That's a good word here, speculate, theory, is that something to be that bright is even more incredibly powerful than these things that we're calling gamma ray bursters. They're two separate things. But what they think it could be is the collision, Frank, of two neutron stars. Now imagine this. 
two stars at the end of their life from the sun, let's say, almost a million miles in diameter. It used all of its fuel, as we were talking about before, and then it expanded like Arcturus. And then it did a little thing like a person who might have a heart attack. The star went and collapsed. The heart attack of a star would cause it to go supernova. What was left is this tiny little ball of material, the size of, get a little of this, about the size of the Earth. But it has densities that are off the charts, and it has magnetic fields that are like 100 billion times that of even the sun. And when you get this quivering on the surface, two of these neutron stars may have hit each other and sending out this amazing thing called, in the X-ray realm, ultra-luminous X-ray source, 10 million times brighter than the sun. Now, we're seeing 20 years ago, we never knew this stuff. And then to go back to the other strange one, the gamma-ray bursters, these were detected back, They, you know, people talk about this gamma-ray burster that comes from maybe 2 billion light years away. That's far, right? And by the way, it actually pierced the gamma-ray burster, shifting gears. It's energy. It's like a lighthouse beam. And that beam of energy in gamma rays, remember, gamma rays are the shortest or smallest wavelength. They're mostly of, you know, this blue-like energy in this, in this gamma ray region of the spectrum. But they were first detected, people don't know this, back in July of 1967, when an American spacecraft called Vila was searching, it was put up in space to detect nuclear explosions. Like if a country was detonating a nuclear weapon, we'd have a way to know. And maybe one's headed our way. It picked up a gamma-ray burster thinking it was a nuclear explosion. They didn't do anything like a DEFCON thing where they sent up B-52s or something. But the point of the matter is this energy from out in space, both gamma-ray bursters and these things now called ULXs, ultra-luminous X-ray sources, it's amazing what we're finding out. And get a look of this. Just in the last 15 to 20 years, all this stuff is coming in wow. front of us. Wow. That's incredible. 800-848-92. Well, actually, I'm going to stop giving the phone number because the phone lines are jammed. We can't get anybody else on. But So let's uh, get to uh, as many of these questions as we can. Joe is in Queens. Joe, you're on with Steve Cates. Yeah. Hi, Steve. I have uh, three quick things, actually. First would yes. be... The Kiefer belt, how is that measured, and is that changing its dimensions? The second would be, I know you have familiarity with uh, fighter jets. Uh, what are the aerodynamics involved with that, uh, and do those planes shake at those speeds? And okay. the third thing is uh, someone uh, mentioned that there was uh, like a dragon remains or dragons on Mars what do you think of the whole concept of the dragon, either mythologically or possibly mm-hmm. in reality? No, great questions. Let me start off with Kuiper Belt. What it is, and you probably know this, but the dimensions go beyond, let's say, where, where dwarf Pluto is. We have a few other objects out there. They go out to an object called Sedna. That whole area that's literally billions of miles out into space, way beyond Pluto, is a big ring of material, Joe, that actually was the area where comets are formed. So there's no definitive you know, I can't give you an exact mileage of how far it is, but out there, this big ring around the sun, and that's the area where comets come from, maybe leftover planetary objects that never formed. But going on to your fighter jet question, now that we're developing these aircraft, like I've seen in many air shows, and we used to know the gentleman who flew as the person who did uh, originally was the uh, test pilot for the F-22 Raptor. Now, as you get to go in those credible speeds, these aircraft have to have these amazingly streamlined bodies, as you know. But we're going faster and faster and now into the hypersonic realm. So what you don't want to have happen is any air surface have any capability where the thing is going to start wobbling. 
So it almost has to have like, you know, a coefficient of drag has to be extremely low. But the thing that you're talking about on Mars, I can't confirm that that's an arc, you know, that's some sort of a relic of an ancient civilization. But many of the things, including the face on Mars, not to take away from the possibility that there was a civilization there, the images that I'm seeing on there and other people are seeing, they may look and reminiscent or look like that of a dragon, but we're not sure. We have to get there and maybe kind of hit it with a hammer or put it under a microscope, and then I think we'll know. But always good questions. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Don in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Sky. Good morning, Don. Um, Hi. Um, The James Webb Telescope found several galaxies at the edge of the universe, and that's kind of contrary to what we would expect out there. Uh, Exactly. Comment on that. Well, we may have to reshape, uh, Don, our whole concept of what we're talking about, about the evolution of the universe, because you're right. The universe, as we keep saying, I, I don't like the term Big Bang, but we'll just say Big Expansion, whichever you want is fine. 13.77 billion years ago, the universe just popped from a little, like, infinite point of dot, like a little dot. So you're absolutely right. Why are we seeing galaxies that are forming maybe 700 million years after the expansion when we think that time should have made that a lot slower or a lot longer for the evolution? So maybe there's something out there that we're really not sure of about how we're thinking and hypothesizing how this universe really forms. So it's almost peering, as you were talking about, Don, to back to the original moment of creation. And seven, like I say, Frank, what's the difference of 700 million years when you're talking about 13.77 billion? You're almost at the zero mark. A great question, but again, one of those unanswered things. Why did galaxies form that soon? We may have to reshape our whole subject of how cosmology fits in and how the creation of the universe started. 800-848-9222. Dave is in Lockport. Hello, Dave. Yeah, how you doing, Frank and Dr. Sky? Good morning. Good. I, have, I have a question for Dr. Sky, but first, uh, I would like to correct you, Frank, about uh, the LBL, my local hometown radio station. It's not in Buffalo. It's in Lockport, New York. Oh, okay. Well, we're pretty close. We're pretty close, Dave. Yeah, I know, but... I used to go to Lockport all the time. I, I, I accept yeah. that correction, Dave. Thank you. Great town, man. I've lived here my, most of my life. Well, we appreciate you listening. Thank you. Thank you. And Don, not, I mean, excuse me, not, not not to cut you guys off, but isn't that true from the ocean, from the lake? You can actually look across and see the CN Tower across on Lake Ontario on a clear day. Oh yeah, if if you go down by the lakeshore, yes, you can. I have done it many times. I love it. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful place. Anyway, Doctor Sky, I have a question for you. Uh, why, uh, when, if at all, you see us putting a moon base up? And why haven't we done it yet? Well, let's start with the the end end part of your question. Why haven't we done it yet? Budgetary constraints. Remember, the Congress fuels NASA, and NASA's budget, if you take a look at it, is so tiny in comparison to other, you know, three-letter agencies out there. We haven't done it because after Apollo 17 went to the moon, there were other Apollos. There was going to be an 18, a 19, and a 20. And one of those Apollos, I forget which exact number, maybe 18 or 19, was going to land in this giant crater called Copernicus, which is this big 60-mile-in-diameter crater. That would have been exciting. But the real reason we haven't set up a moon base there 
is because basically all the monies went to the space shuttle program. Not to knock it, it's a fantastic project, but it was meant to do low Earth orbit to replace satellites and to uh, do other Defense Department things. Uh, very interesting question. So we haven't gone there because of budgetary reasons. We could have done the trip to Mars 15, 20 years ago if we had the, you know, the mindset, the, the, the positivity on this and the budget to do it. All right. Thank you, Dave. Give our best to everybody over there at WLVL. We will continue in just a moment with Dr. Sky, a.k.a. Steve Cates. Give us a call, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Don't let the moon break your heart. Love blooms at night. In daylight it dies. Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Oh, keep your heart from me, for someday I'll return and you know you're the only one I'll ever love. Too many nights, too many stars, too many moons to change your mind. If I'm gone for long, don't forget where you belong. When the stars come out, remember you are mine. Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Don't let the Dean Martin, don't let the stars get in your eyes. Well, we're talking about the stars and everything that involves looking up with Steve Cates. A.K.A. Dr. Sky. If you're interested in our conversation, you will love the Dr. Sky experience. Check it out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, one of the uh, one of the items that we've had on our list for the last couple of weeks. So let me ask you about it before um, before yes. I forget about it. Is uh, you know I got a pair of binoculars based on our conversations because y- you make the um the stargazing aspect of life so much more interesting and so much more focused there's a lot of people that love to use a telescope love to use binoculars but right. a lot of people especially when there's something special or like a full moon a lunar eclipse whatever the case may be they just whip out their mobile phone and will take a photo of it with the with their camera on their mobile phone there was some controversy over Samsung's new space zoom, which purports to show what the moon looks like. Evidently, it's not really the moon. And then there was a, some pushback <laughs> right. over it. What do we know about this Samsung situation, Steve? Well, I'm always honest, Frank. I really don't know a whole heck of a lot about the dynamics, but it's something inside their software, I guess. I just purchased the other day, not not to go against Samsung, one of the Apple Oh, iPhone I have 14s. no vested interest in Samsung. I'm not a stockholder. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, I just, I just got myself an iPhone 14 Pro, and I'm looking at it for the three-camera capability that it has. Maybe I'll shoot some sky photos. But I did read a little bit about this. Again, I'm not the most knowledgeable person in the world on the subject of that technology. But I think what they were saying is that people were getting these images that in many cases, the people were saying that that's really, is that really in the, the moon or is that some kind of software enhancement? So I really don't know. But uh, the best thing to do, Frank, going back to the simplest thing of all, is I think just like you did, a pair of binoculars, you really do not have to have one of these monster telescopes. You're that interested in it. You know, time will tell and your budget will tell you what you can do. But 
Binoculars are great. I mean, I hope you're getting that experience. Absolutely. Lot. Right. You can use them, what, for sporting events, for everything. But the point is, remember this, folks, real quick. The left number, like you say, I had a pair of binoculars that are 10 by 50. The left number 10 is how many times it magnifies. And the right number, if it was 50, is measured in millimeters. So there's 25.4 millimeters in an inch, as we know. So that's about a two-inch or so piece of glass. So the bigger the glass, and not always the higher the power is better. So I have a pair of 10 by 56s that I use. From, I have a big giant pair of binoculars that's like, I don't know, 20 by 150. But I don't have the arms to hold the thing up. It weighs like 40 pounds. So the smaller binocular will give you great views of the sky. And don't you just wish you could take the picture that showed that whole stereoscopic effect that you're getting when you're using both eyes? Mm, 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in Connecticut. Hello, David. Hey, uh, my question is the speed of gravity. How fast does it move? I recognize it's the attraction of mass, so you can't turn it on and off. And so my theoretical question is, if the sun winked out of the universe all of a sudden, would the Earth immediately fly out of orbit, or would it take eight minutes, the speed of light, for us to realize there's no more gravity? Absolutely. You're, very, you're spot on, and people may not know this, David. You're right. Eight and a half minutes or so hmm. is the time that light is kind of slowed down. So if you're laying out there getting a tan out on the beach or a lake in the summer, and you say, wow, it's really hot here. I better put on more SPF like 500 or whatever. But the reality is that light is still eight and a half minutes old. And if the sun just you know, disappeared, which it won't do that way, if anything, let's talk about the horrible side of the equation. If it actually imploded and collapsed, the flash that you would see, which would be the last thing anybody would see, would have happened eight and a half minutes ago. And because of the speed of light, it took that long to get here. But, but I'm hoping, uh, David, yes, that the sun doesn't pop away. And the gravity, of course, would take – you wouldn't notice the difference. Uh, it would probably take – how do I say this? Not sure. But if the sun just were to poof out and go away, the Earth still has its own orbital velocity, but we would definitely be affected. It would be a very bad day for all of us. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I don't think there's much debate about that. Hey, uh, there was the, uh, Relativity Space. Uh, they did this launch of a 3D printed rocket, and there's been a lot of talk about 3D printing, talking mm-hmm. about 3D printed houses, 3D printed fake organs, 3D printed food even. Right. Apparently things didn't go so well with this 3D printed rocket as it uh, evidently failed three minutes after liftoff, do we think that uh, that this is likely going to put an end to 3D printed rocket technology, or just encourage people to try a little harder? I think they encourage them to try a little harder because look on the big side. Even Elon Musk has stated, a little surprising, that he's saying, "Don't expect, in so many words, not to quote him exactly, don't expect miracles from these first Starlink and you know, Starship launches." Excuse me. So the same thing with the 3D printed rockets. Obviously, it's going to take time to be able to develop and perfect anything. But we're way ahead of the curve because what is it in technology? It used to say like computer technology would change what? Every like 15 years or something? I, don't know if, I think it's Moore's Law, and I forget the exact time frame. But in other words, we're seeing things happen so fast that the computer or the phone that you buy now, which would have been obsolete maybe in a couple of years, is now obsolete in what? In months, if not even a short period, less than a year. So I think, you know, they have a lot of things to positivity on the side of doing more 3D printing with rockets. Gary is on Staten Island. Hello, Gary. Uh, Yes. uh, 
Actually, Elon Musk was among a group of um, scientists who recently uh, expressed a fear of uh, artificial intelligence. Does uh, Dr. Sky share that fear uh, with uh, people like Musk or or, or not? And uh, uh, yes. Gary, I share that same feeling. I mean, Elon Musk is obviously, if it's so scary, he's also developing his own, which I think there's a thing that he wants to do. Frank, you probably know more about this from maybe even interviewing some of these people. But he wants to do something where there's a positivity side to this AI and maybe put the controls in that it doesn't go rogue. But, Gary, I'm a little concerned about this because I remember somebody describing, I think I read this last week, that there was this other AI engine and its goal was to see how it can, you know, destroy humanity. And it was searching all over the place for ways to do that. It was looking to find nuclear weapons. It couldn't come up with any. But it never stops, and it wants to continue to go on. I, uh, Gary, I'm a little concerned about that, too. Mm, uh, you, you and me both. Hey, there is the Ingenuity on Mars, the tiny NASA helicopter. It just completed its 50th flight on the Red Planet. What's the legacy of Ingenuity after 50 flights? What have we learned from it? Well, it's a technology demonstrator, and it's only had supposed to last, what, a short period of time, not to give the exact number. But they refer to it as Ginny, the short version of Ingenuity. But its first flight that it made was only like 39 seconds, and it has this amazing technology that's, that's demonstrating that it can actually fly around the planet. It can do things it'll harbor in the future when we have actual you know, drones that are much larger than that that can do this. But it's been on the surface of uh, Mars in, in running in a period of, what, 728 days, as they call them, sols on the planet Mars, gets set for bigger and better things as we go to Titan, This is the largest satellite of Saturn, which is the largest satellite in the solar system that has an active atmosphere. They're looking to send in the future, this isn't something like next week, maybe in 10 or 15 years, something called Dragonfly, which will mimic that of a literal dragonfly. They have the ability to fly around, take off, go to different locations, and conduct research. Because on Titan, Frank, as we see gas prices rising all over, Titan has oceans of ethane. And they're actually you know, liquid there on the surface, big lakes and everything. That would be an amazing place. And it rains ethane. It may even have what's called cryovolcanoes that pump out diamonds bigger than a man who wants to get a woman a diamond or whoever <laughs> wants to buy anybody a diamond. A little five-carat uh, perfect diamond here on the earth, which costs so much money, I'm sure, out of love. You could probably run around on Titan and pick up big chunks that were the size of maybe half the size of an SUV if you could figure a way to get it home. Uh, Helena has been waiting for uh, a long time. Helena, we have less than a minute here. Quick question for Dr. Skye. Oh, love you, Dr. Skye. Good morning. The, the latest thing about uh, the vitamin B3? Yes. Does that mean that po- po- possibly we've been seeded? I think it's true. I think it's a term called panspermia, and that's when comets seeded onto asteroids, maybe the building blocks of life. Wow. It's a great story, and yes, there's things that are called organic molecules, and we brought them back from an asteroid called Ryugu, and one coming up, coming up in October. So it's uh, definitely positive for looking at life and molecules Steve, in space. Steve Cates, check him out. Dr. Sky Experience, Red Apple Podcast Network. Keep your feet on the ground. Keep reaching for the stars.